You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. We're going to start. We're going to jump right in because as usual, I prepared way too much content, so I'm going to move really fast. We're going to start by jumping in. We're going to look at Genesis. My Bible's upside down. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at when shame enters the human race. It's weird to think about. There was a time before shame. There was a time when human beings existed and lived and they walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. That is what life sounds like without shame. There was a time before shame and then there was a moment where that communion was broken. It happens in chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. And then the serpent is craftier than the other wild animals. We're gonna see wild animals come up in another passage in just a sec. He was craftier. And then, you know, if the serpent's goal is to get Eve to turn away from God, Eve is already aware of the tree. She already knows that it's there. She probably walks by it twice a week. And for some reason, up until this point in the story, the tree has not been so powerful. It has not been so alluring. It has not been so tempting that it has caused her to turn away from God. But something's about to happen. You will not certainly die said the serpent to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And he inserts this idea that the problem with the tree isn't that God is protecting you from something. The problem with the tree is God is preventing you from something. The problem with the tree is that God is insecure. God knows that if you really knew what it was like to have your foot in the world, if you really knew what it was like to go have these other experiences, you would realize that God actually can't be trusted. You're not going to die. God knows that this is a good thing and he's hiding it from you. He's keeping it from you. So the thing that the serpent does before he says, hey, you should go eat the tree. He says, are you really, really sure that you can trust God? And so this is what happens. Fear, the first occurrence of fear. Fear, when it comes to the kind of, you know, normal fear, like um, there's a guard dog and he's barking at me and I'm afraid to go in the gate. That's healthy fear. That's like, oh, there's a direct byproduct of me violating this very clear boundary. Fear that tells us to rebel from God, this kind of fear, fear that God isn't trustworthy, is not a part of your original makeup. There was a time before fear, and fear is a foreign occupier in your life. So, so the serpent inserts fear, and it says, the woman saw that the tree was good and pleasing for food, good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So this, this is like one of those moments where it's like, oh, I see it. You guys, I, I get to work with addiction every day. And there's this incredible uh, thing that you notice with addiction that nobody suffers from addiction because addiction is so good. Nobody gets hooked on cocaine or pornography or marijuana or nicotine or whatever the thing is. Nobody gets hooked on it because it's so good. That's the way we used to think. 60 years ago, for the last 50, 60 years, our conventional clinical wisdom is like, oh, the power of addiction is because the thing they're addicted to is so powerful. And what we're realizing is 
Addiction is not a chemical issue. Addiction is a connection issue. When I am alone, when I grow up without a deep sense of connectedness and belonging, I become intensely vulnerable in my brain. It's like you're holding my brain underwater and it's, it's seeking that connection. It's seeking that sense that I am loved, that I am known, that I, that I bring joy to somebody's life. And then your brain gets a hit of cocaine and massive amounts of dope, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, oxytocin, all of these things are released in like a thousand times the dose of a normal human experience. And your brain says, oh, that's the thing I was waiting for. So next time you feel alone, next time you feel anxious, your brain says, I know what to do. Let's go get another hit of that thing. And it becomes out of control. So we're looking at women, uh, we're looking at the first woman, the woman in the garden, and she's totally fine with this tree. And then the serpent inserts the idea that maybe God isn't trustworthy. And all of a sudden she sees the tree differently. All of a sudden the tree is pleasing to the eye. All of a sudden, none of the other fruit in the garden look as good as the tree. She gave it to Oso. She took a bite and she ate some of it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So we see the first occurrence of numbing, that the fear, what if God doesn't have my best interest at heart, now demands some kind of numbing, some kind of, uh, some kind of medication. And guys, in our culture, we know how to numb. We have enough research. We have enough research to actually say conclusively that this is the most addicted, obese, uh, medicated, and in debt adult cohort in human history. We know how to numb because the further we get from the heart of God, the more we have to figure out how to, how to live in waters that we were not meant for. So we, we see them numbing. She gives it to her husband who's right there, not looking out for her. He eats it too. And then the man heard the sound of the Lord as the God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord in the trees. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, which captures, that is the heart of shame right there. And we see the first occurrence of hiding. We see a lot of times what, what hiding looks like in our life is the fine mask. For them, it looked like fig leaves. They kept it real simple in the beginning. <laughs> hiding gets really, really complex. The mo I, and I genuinely think the most Essential form of hiding is the I'm fine syndrome, right? The Sunday morning, how's it going? Just loving Jesus. When my marriage is falling apart, my kids are falling apart, my, my business is falling apart. I think one of the most dangerous things about success is because if I enter into success before I learn that dependency on God is a safe thing, I believe that success is my identity and it becomes this mask that now I'm hiding behind and now I'm trapped. And so we see the first occasion of hiding and he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You guys, we love blame. Blame is like this warm blanket we wrap around ourselves when we're feeling anxious and insecure. I was, I was actually talking to my wife between the two services because I used a, a different example. I was like, I know there's a few examples and she helped me really quick come up with something. It was actually just recently, I was, I was getting ready for work 
and I was running late, and she had asked me the night before, Brian, will you do the dishes? And I didn't do the dishes. Now I'm running late, and I'm hustling around the house, and I'm getting frustrated, and I'm probably, my tone is changing towards my kids, and I'm just, I'm just in my head, and I'm looking out for my own good because I am feeling frustrated because I'm late, which makes me feel not good enough, which makes me feel like, what's wrong with me? But I don't like that feeling. So I do the dishes, and, I'm, and now I'm in the car, and I'm feeling anxious because I might be late, and then I get to my office, and I forgot my office keys. They are in my house, in my kitchen, where I put them down to do the dishes that I didn't do the night before that my wife asked me to do. And my first thought, as I, I literally, I'm walking up towards my office, my first thought is, thanks a lot, Sarah. Because you know what? The, the, the pain of just owning that, the pain of just saying, I messed up, I wasn't organized, I didn't honor my wife the night before, and it got me into a frazzle, and I got out the door, and now I'm standing here without my keys, is too painful, and it's way more convenient to just outsource that pain and say, you know what, Sarah, I'm gonna let you have this, because that leaves me feeling armored up, and blame enters the human experience. At any time we talk about shame, and this is so interesting, I would not have even seen, Anytime we talk about shame, we have to talk about its entourage, hiding, blaming, and numbing, because they are the three most essential forms of armor that we put on when we're, when we're afraid about our own identity. So we see this, um, and if we're going to have a clear, we're going to have like a a conversation about shame, we have to understand that shame is the toxic side of actually something that's really healthy, right? I need to be able to admit that I failed. I need to be able to admit that I made a mistake. The healthy side of that is called guilt. And it's really interesting when, when a couple comes in and there's been some infidelity and the partner who committed the infidelity and you can just tell, they, they are just crawling in their skin, they're in pain because they're talking about the thing they don't wanna talk about and we say, man, what is, what is the thing that prevents you from turning towards your spouse and saying, I am so sorry. What I did was wrong. I betrayed you, and I want you to know I am so sorry. And the person will just say, I feel so much shame. And that's what it is. You know what? Shame isn't a healthy feeling that I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. Not my, pro my behavior is a problem. I am, a, I am a problem. Where, where guilt gives the focus on my behavior or my decision making or my thought process, I, I'm late to class and I, instead of thinking, oh man, I shouldn't have stayed out so late at my buddy's house playing cards, I think, what's wrong with you? Of course you're late, you're so disorganized, you're a mess, you're never gonna amount to anything. Instead of saying the focus being on the problem, the behavior, the focus is on me. Guilt propends us towards responsibility. If, if I feel like, oh man, I'm, I'm in a bad call there, that's a really safe thing to think about because I can make a different call. I committed a really bad behavior. I can change my behavior. And so what we see is there's a natural momentum in guilt towards changing, towards adaption, towards growth. In shame, I am the problem. I can't be different. And so shame leads us into addiction and stuckness and this maladaptive cyclical behavior. Does that make sense? When we, think about, when we think about what it means to, uh, to locate ourselves in our faith, when we lose the tolerance 
for vulnerability because shame is this voice we're carrying around in our heads. We really lose the tolerance for, our, for vulnerability in our heroes too. We lose the toler tolerance for vulnerability uh, in our savior, in our faith, in our theology, because if I can't be vulnerable, if I can't exist in uncertainty, if I, if I can't exist in the space where I don't have all the answers and I'm not perfect, then I can't tolerate that in somebody else either. And there's this really interesting article I've, I found a couple of years ago where uh, they meant well. And I'm not gonna tell you the name of the article because you'll look it up and I'm about to be really critical of this article. But they meant well, and there's a lot of the article that I like, but the article was something to the effect of why Jesus is like the ultimate superhero. And they had all these reasons, and some of them weren't too bad. Some of them were like, he used powerful words, he had no pride issues, he didn't wear a mask, which is pretty cool. A superhero doesn't wear a mask, you're like, okay, I'll give you that. He didn't use technology. I don't love that one because I'm, I'm a Batman fan, but whatever. He never sinned. He didn't have a kryptonite. You're like, that's pretty good. And then there were a few of them were like, that is awesome, that is a good point. Uh, he scared demons, how epic is that? He connected to people, he was both God and man. He controlled the elements, he walked on water, he didn't need weapons, and my absolute favorite, the ultimate, he's like, he defeated death. Which is, when it comes to the superhero debate, it makes me picture, I'm gonna nerd out, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm a therapist. It makes me picture like a superhero process group, like a therapy group for superheroes. And they're all sitting there talking about, you know, how hard it is to be a superhero. And they're talking about their exploits. And, and like Superman says, I defeated Lex Luthor, but it was really hard, but I'm, I'm glad I got through it. And then the Hulk's like, yeah, that's nice, man. I defeated Loki. He's a demigod, you know, so. And then they get to Jesus, who's like less impressive looking than the other ones. They're like, where's your muscles, dude? You know, like they're not expecting much from Jesus. And Jesus is like... Um, I defeated death. And they say, they say is, that the, is that the name of your villain? We haven't heard of him. He's no, 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 no. Death itself. Like, the phenomenon of death. And then the, the debate is over. And the other superheroes are like, I'm not coming back to this group. I don't want to do this again. But when we lose, when we lose our tolerance for vulnerability because being seen is dangerous, we lose our tolerance for vulnerability in our faith. And all of a sudden, we want a whitewash, bulletproof Jesus who didn't go through suffering, who didn't feel fear, who didn't get tempted, and we start to make him this clean, bulletproof guy when I don't even think, I think that you're robbing the gospel of its beauty. The gospel isn't that God came down to earth and kind of became a man to show us what it's like to be God. It's that God became a man to show us what it's like to be truly human, to, to show us what it's like to be surrendered and dependent and in love with a father that you trust and you believe has your best interest at heart, right? So we rob the gospel of vulnerability and we lose our ability to really feel grace, to really receive that for ourselves. There's this, uh, this moment that happened several years ago when my, uh, my wife and I took our girls when they were much younger. They're now six and eight. They were uh, two and four at the time. And I, I'm one of those that I like adventure. I like roller coasters. I like those thrill things. And I really, really wanted my daughters to like them too. Has any parent, like you did, it was like, it was, it was too soon. It was too soon. I did that before. We, she wasn't ready for that thing if, if, in your parenting. Well, I, got, I spent the entire car ride down t, 
to Disneyland, hyping up my four-year-old on Gadget's Go Coaster in Toontown. Because I'm like, this is a safe bet. It's made for little kids. It's not, it's not going to get out of control. And I, I bought her into it. She was excited. And what I did was, I was like, I'm going to capture this moment. This is going to be epic. I'm going to videotape this. You know, I'll, I'll even make it cooler. I'll videotape it with slow-mo. And I'm going to capture this precious moment where my daughter goes on a roller coaster with me for the first time. And you can see in the first little snapshot I got, you can see this elation, this anticipation, this excitement. <laughs> She's so cute. And you can see, what I see in that picture is I see trust. On that face is I trust daddy because obviously daddy wouldn't do something that would terrify me. He's not gonna put me in a little car that's gonna scare the crap out of me, right? You already know where the story's going. <laughs> so we're like, click, 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 click. And this is like in the little shed before we leave. And by the time we're, we're like on the, the clicking part, she's starting to get a little anxious, but she's still with me. And what happened was instead of doing the video, my thumb was shaking. So it only captured two shots. It captured this one and then it captured another one. And in one fail moment, I eradicated my daughter's trust in me. And what you see in that face, you guys can, you can move on. <laughs> what you see in my daughter's face is, it's the floor falling out from under her, right? Like I thought I knew what I was in for and this is not what I had in mind. We spent a long time talking about that experience. <laughs> we have not yet been back on that ride, but I have gotten her on to Pirates of the Caribbean. I've got, we're working our way back in. We're doing some healing work. It was, <laughs> it's not the end of the story, but I definitely set us back a few years because I was rushing it. <laughs> and if we're really honest with ourselves, we all know that moment for ourselves too. We all know that moment where we thought we had found our soulmate and then we saw them kissing somebody else. With that moment where you, where you thought like clearly God is calling me into this business and then the, the business falls apart or clearly God would not put my marriage through this season of wilderness, through this season of trial. If, if I married the right person, oh my gosh, something has gone wrong. And if shame is the thing that's coming to the surface, we have to remember that the root of that is my trust in God has been wounded. That we don't doubt our identity unless we're doubting our father who gave it to us. When we think about losing our tolerance for vulnerability, we lose our tolerance for trust. We lose our tolerance for dependence. And it's interesting because we want to make Jesus into this self-empowered figure. And the reality is Jesus says again and again and again, I only ever say what I hear my father saying. I only ever do what I see my father doing. He didn't come here to show us what it looked like to be superhuman. He came here what it showed us to look like what it, to be deeply human, to be truly human. Does that make sense? So we're going to look real quick at, a, at, a, at another example where Jesus, who is the new Adam, he gives, us, he gives us some schoolwork in what it means to be vulnerable. So if you guys have ever heard the, the story of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, it's a very, very short story. 
which is to me like the only count against it because there's so much there. But in, in Matthew chapter four, it says that Jesus was led in, was led by the spirit into the wilderness. He was led by who? The by the spirit. He was led where? By who? How many times when we are in the wilderness, when our marriage is going through something rocky, when our finances are on the rocks, when our kids are struggling, how many times do we think the devil led me there? How many times do we think something's gone wrong? We get a pop tire and we think the devil did it. The devil didn't do that. The nail gave you a pop tire. We think I didn't need that last donut. The devil didn't make you eat that donut. That donut was delicious. We have got to remember, we give the devil way too much power. We have got to remember that when we are in seasons of wilderness, that we are there to be crafted and reformed, to be purified. We are there because we are loved. We are not there because we are forgotten. Jesus led into the spirit because he was being prepared for a destiny that was way over his head and he needed a season of preparation. We are led into the spirit, not because we are punished or abandoned, not because we are forgotten, but because we are cherished. You know, a lot of us want success before we're ready for it. And the thing, just like I was going back, when we are given success, when we enter into success before we are ready for it, what happens is we put on this heavy mask that we don't know how to take off. And now we're trapped. And so what, obscurity is a really good thing. Obscurity is a gift. There's a reason that God himself, as a human, spent 30 years in obscurity before he entered into public ministry. There's a reason that Moses spent 40 years as a sheep herder, which, in the, in the, the ways that obscurity can take form, I would say that would be my last on the list. 40 years of obscurity in the wilderness, herding sheep, before God called him back to deliver God's people. Paul spent three years in completely unknown territory. Three years that are lost because he was locked up in a house facing his own demons. God was letting him see the things that would prevent him from stepping into his destiny. We need to remember that those seasons are a gift and not a punishment. I ain't even gotten into the word yet, just a second. So Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And I, almost, I was tempted, I almost like, hey, Dr. Matt, can you come up because this is not my wheelhouse. Can you talk about what is going on in the human body if you have not eaten for 40 days, if you have not drinking water in 40 days? Because we read that in like three sentences and how easy is it for us to jump over the fact that Jesus was in a season of deep, real, visceral suffering. Yeah. It doesn't say that the devil thought Jesus was being tempted. The word of God says Jesus was tempted. Jesus wanted to bail. Jesus wanted to numb the pain that he was in. And the devil knows that if I go straight for the the numbing agent, it's not going to work. So the first thing he says is, if you are the son of God, if you really are God's beloved, if you really are God's anointing, if God really can be trusted, why are you in the desert? Why are you starving to death? Ain't nobody here, nobody cares. 
Why are you all alone? If you are the son of God, stop the pain. You can turn these stones into loaves right now and numb the pain. And Jesus says to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I don't think he's talking to the devil. I think he's talking to himself. I think Jesus is saying, God can be trusted. I can suffer. Pain does not mean that I've been abandoned. Pain means that God is transforming my life at the root level. And he reminds himself, I don't live to avoid pain. I live to, to get rooted in my authentic identity, right? I'm living for my destiny, not for today. He goes on to the next temptation and says, if you are the son of God, he, like the tech that didn't work, but he's going back for it. He said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And if I'm really honest, I read that passage for a long time and I'm like, what? Like, why, why is that a temptation? What is tempting about throwing yourself off of the highest point so that angels will rescue you and just restore you to a level of safety that you had before you jumped off. Like, I don't understand why that's a temptation until you understand the context. It says that he took him to the highest point of the temple. He took him to the most elevated place at the most religious site, at the most high profile, uh, crowded place where he would be seen. And so Jesus is, is going through this wilderness in his life where he's realizing that God has something really big. God has something really big that God is going to do with Jesus. He's realizing that his father has this plan for his life. And I think, I think he's realizing that it's not going to be really pretty. I think he's realizing that there's going to be a lot of pain involved in God using him to rescue the world. And I think he's like, you know what, there's a better way. Instead of emptying myself out like Paul, like, like Paul describes Jesus' life, I could fill myself up. All I gotta do is jump off of this temple and then all of these angels are gonna come rescue me and everyone's gonna see that I'm sent from God and I can just tell them what's up. I can just tell them, hey guys, we're getting it wrong. We should probably change the strategy. We can bail on God's strategy and I can hide behind the mask of my own image, my own religiosity, and I can hide behind the mask of just impressing people. Does that make sense? And we see we go from numbing to hiding to the last temptation that says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And this is the one that feels most cloaked to me because this is the one that to understand the temptation, we have to understand the work that is happening inside of Jesus. Jesus did not grow up knowing that he was going to be crucified on a cross. He does know that, though. He knows that during his life of ministry. So there is a point in Jesus' life where he has to come to that realization. There's a point in Jesus' life where he has to face his destiny and say, am I willing to do that? He has to look at a lot of pain. He has to look at giving himself up so that we can know who we are. And he has to decide, am I going to do that? And the devil takes him and he says, I know that you understand that God's plan for you is to rescue the world. Well, I'll give you the world and I'll spare you the pain, but you gotta turn on God. You gotta say that God doesn't know what he's doing. You gotta worship me 
and rebel against him, and you have to blame God that he's called you to something unfair, unrighteous, unworldly, and he, you need to tell yourself a story that God is untrustworthy and worship me and I will give it all to you in this like gift wrap package and it'll be so easy. And again, to understand the kind of resilience that we're seeing, this kind of strength, this like almost bulletproof as he suffers, we can't understand it unless we look at the passage that happens right before Jesus is led into the wilderness. The very, very last thing that happens to Jesus is that he's baptized. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna expedite this a little bit and say, so Jesus goes down to the Jordan, John's there. He says, John, I want you to baptize me. John does what any of us would do if God said, hey, I want you to baptize me. He's like, yeah, right. Um, that's a little bit backwards. I don't think I'm qualified for that. And Jesus says, no, 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 you gotta do it. And he baptizes Jesus and it says that, as soon as he was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is my son. I love him and he gives me joy. This is my son. I love him and he gives me joy. I love you, you are mine, and you give me joy. I love you, you're mine, and you give me joy. And the next thing that happens is God leads, will, leads Jesus into the wilderness. When we see Jesus responding to the devil, Jesus is not talking, I don't, I don't think Jesus is worried about the devil. I don't think, I, I think he knows at the drop of the hat, his dad could, could like run the devil out of town. He could get him away from his presence. Jesus is talking to himself. When he says, we don't live by bread, we live by the word of God. What he's saying is, he loves me, I am his, and he takes joy in me. I, all of us here, every one of us, knows what it's like to hide. We all know what it's like to numb. We all know what it's like to seek false sense of empowerment and a false sense of our own righteousness by blaming and outsourcing that pain to other people. And what we see flips our conventional self-made man wisdom on its head. What we see is Jesus saying, not I, but Christ. Not myself, but my Father. He said that true strength, authentic power always comes from dependency. It always comes from trust. It always comes from relying on God. And what happens when we're really young, we have a roller coaster moment and dad isn't there to wrap his arm around us and say, man, that was scary, wasn't it? I had you though, that, you didn't expect that. That kind of pulled the rug out from under you. You're, you're, feeling, you're feeling like something scary in your body. You're feeling alone. You're feeling, I want you to know I'm here. I love you, you're mine and you've got this. And when that doesn't happen, that little voice inside of your head that says, you got dropped, stays with you. And so the next time we're invited onto a roller coaster, we, we go on there with a mask that we, like, we got it all together, I'm not scared. Or we just bypass it, that's not safe. Or we numb out, we tell our wife, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at anything. And, and we just stay in this place of secrecy and this place of shame. 
all the while there's this invitation and saying, I know it's scary. I know it's gonna feel like breaking bones. I know it's gonna feel like, like suffering. But what it is, is you're coming to the surface. Do you guys know, let me, there's some, my life got pretty, pretty radically shook when I did this word study on the word confession. The word confession is rooted in the Latin con with fessore, which is the Latin word for to stand. When we confess, what we are doing is we are standing in agreement with God about who we are and we're saying that sin, that behavior, that fear, that thing that's tagging onto my life, that is not who I am. And the problem is, the problem is we think confession is standing in agreement with our pain. We think, oh, what I'm admitting I'm admitting that I'm unworthy. I'm admitting that I'm actually, I don't give God joy. I'm admitting that I, God can't be trusted. I'm actually just a disappointment when confession is the exact opposite. It's reminding your own heart. It says, confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. Not because you're unworthy, because in confession we realize, oh, that was never me to start with. That was never my real identity. I never wanted that substance or that behavior or that betrayal in my life. There's this thing that happens um, in, our, in our marriages. I realized about, uh, about four years, three and a half, four years into my marriage that I was engaging in micro-betrayal of my wife all day long. Because what happens, we, we got married real idealized. I, like, I've been reading books since I was 19. I got this. I'm, I read the marriage books. I know what to do. It doesn't matter that I, I never had a healthy marital model ever. I lived th four, uh, three divorces before I was 12 years old. I had never seen like what health looks like, but I read some books, don't worry, I got this. We get more and more polarized. We get more and more stuck. We get more and more frustrated. We stop turning to each other. I stop sharing my pain. I stop sharing my frustration. And then I start to do this. It's what John Gottman calls micro betrayal. It's I start to, man, I don't need this. Gosh, why do you have to be so negative? It's never good enough for you. And I start to compare who my wife is and her pain to some phantom person that doesn't exist, right? And we do it all the time. We wanna outsource our pain. And so we start to say, man, I don't need this. And we compare what I do know about my life to what I think God has done in somebody else's life. And we start to be bitter and frustrated and feel abandoned and forgotten. And what we need to remember is that obscurity is a gift, a wilderness is a place where God brought you because he loves you. And the doorway to your strength, not the giving up of it, the doorway is dependence and trust and vulnerability. Does that make sense? Yeah. The thing is we get into this like self, um, this uh, me-centered strength, and we end up, we want the connection, but we want to somehow bypass the exposure, right? We want the business, but we don't want the uncertainty. We want like the adventure, but we don't want the wilderness. Um, we want to get stronger, but we don't want our trainer to see our weakness, right? We want to get swole, but we don't want to get sore. We're trying to bypass, we're trying to bypass the pain. And it's, always, always, transformation and freedom always happens when we turn towards our pain and we create a seat at the table and we welcome it and we, we acknowledge that that pain has something to offer us, that God is on the other side of our pain. Freedom is always on the other side of your fear. And if we run from it, 
we miss out on the freedom. So I just want to say, as I am, um, I'm going to welcome Dr. Matt up, hand it back to your pastor. We all numb. So if you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, I do that. I don't watch 200 episodes of The Bachelor because I love The Bachelor, even if I do love The Bachelor. I watch it because turning it off, y'all wanna know why you do anything? I'll give you a little, a little hack. If you wanna know your real motive for doing anything, stop doing it. Because what happens is you have to sit with the vacuum now. If I stop drinking three beers at the end of every single day, now I have to sit with what comes up if I don't drink those three beers. If I stop watching Netflix at the end of the day, I have to sit with the restlessness and the anxiety and my mind starts to like, did I do good enough work today? Where's the money gonna come next week? Or I start worrying about, am I a good husband or a bad husband? And I, and I have to sit with all this fear. And if you are seeing that numbing in your life, I am not here to offer a quick fix. When my, when my, uh, I didn't talk about Jason Pote yet, did I? <laughs> I, I did last service. I just like, I'm about to tell a story two times in a row. Basically what happened, when I was in high school, I met one of my best friends. His name was Jason Pote. Jason Pote was born with a tumor in his arm that grew with him for 16 years up until I met him in high school. And then as he was going through adolescence, the hormones that are involved and becoming an adult were metastasizing this tumor. It was becoming dangerous. So for the first time in his life, they were talking about surgically removing it. And he was about to go in for an MRI. And the men of my church circled around Jason and they prayed like I have never seen men pray. And they went into this MRI. And if I'm really honest with you, it literally never even occurred to me that God might heal Jason. But Jason came back to us in school the day after the MRI. He said, the doctor walked in. He didn't even look up at us. He walked in with the results. He's like, man, I can't explain it, but the tumor is not there. The tumor is gone. He said, there's scar tissue. There's scar tissue, but there's no tumor. God delivered him from physical illness. And I think one of the, one of the things that we short, shortchange God, we shortchange our own growth is when we think, oh, I got delivered and you needed that. There's no freedom if God does not deliver you from the chains, from the oppression, from the demon that is haunting your life. But many times when we live with oppression, scar tissue grows around that oppression that thoughts, beliefs about who I am, beliefs about what I can expect from my life, beliefs about what God might call me to. Dr. Matt had me do this exercise several weeks ago, and it was, it was pretty humbling. He said, he was talking to a big group of people, and he said, I want you to write down your dreams, just freehand, just whatever you want. And he gave us a couple of seconds, and I wrote down these things, you know, like this kind of destiny, this kind of work, this kind of uh, um, success, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, all right, guys, if you listed 50 or more things, you are in touch with your dream, right? You're in, you, are, you are awake. He had much better language to describe this than I am right now. And then he said, like, if you're between 50 and 40, you, need, you got some work to do. If you're between 30 and 40, if you're between 20 and 40, I had 12 things on my list. And there was this moment, it's like, oh, I still don't think I'm worthy. I dream really small because I think I'm small. And when we numb and when we hide, and when we blame, we are buffering ourselves from the vulnerability that God might be calling us to something really big. So, okay, this is the third time I'm wrapping up, but I'm gonna do it this time. 
My invitation to you is really simple. We all numb, we all hide, and we all blame. The antidote to shame is not doing better. The antidote to shame is empathy. The antidote to shame, and I believe there is only one, is to be fiercely, deeply, and vulnerably known by another human being and seen as valuable, to be received and accepted and loved in your mess. And so I wanna ask you a question. Are you in a connect group? Do you go down for prayer? Are you seeking out your, your pastor for mentorship? Do you, do you have these voices in your life that don't just get to see the mask, they get to see the fear. They don't just get to see the success, they get to see the uncertainty. Are those voices there? I'm just gonna pray for you guys and then hand over the mic. Lord, we thank you that our calling is bigger than we dare dream. We thank you that if there's ever a moment where we doubt that it is fear and shame and we know right off the bat that that's a lie. Lord, we ask for courage. We ask for your spirit to give us courage to face ourselves on a deeper level than we have ever faced before, to look into the mirror of our marriages, into the mirror of our relationships, into the mirror of the Holy Spirit, and actually see the fear. Lord, we pray for the courage and the transforming space to be vulnerable with our brothers and sisters, to go into connect group and really tell what your marriage is going, what it's like to really be seen by your mentors, to really be seen by our pastors. God, we pray for the courage and the development because we know that you will be there to meet us. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.